Hello and welcome back to the Two Kinky Women podcast where we dish about everything kink. I am your co-host, Midnight Lady, and my partner is Mistress Gabrielle. We are so excited today to bring you this special guest and I'm going to let Mistress Gabrielle introduce her. So it's my pleasure to introduce to you Susan Wright, who is the executive director of the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom. Susan founded the NCSF 20 years ago to fight the stigma against kink and consensual non-monogamy. Susan's also a writer with over 30 books published and her research on kink and consensual non-monogamy has been published in 20 peer-reviewed articles in professional journals. Susan is gonna tell us all about explicit prior permission. Has anybody heard of that before? I know this was a new one for me. Okay, consensual, explicit prior permission for consent to kink. She's gonna talk to us about kink and polyamory aware professionals where you can get free referrals. She's gonna talk about how you get help with discrimination through incident reporting and response from the NCSF people. And if you are listening and you are a member of a group, you can get your free brochures about consent for events and parties that you have. And Susan's also gonna talk to us about creating a consent policy and reporting procedures for your group, if that is what you represent a group. But essentially we're gonna talk about everything today having to do with the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom. So it is my very great pleasure to introduce to you Susan Wright. Oh, I really appreciate it. You are very welcome. We're so glad to have you here. Susan, I've known about the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom for a very, very long time, but can you give our audience just a little example of, of how you guys got started and what it is that you've come to understand about the kink and consensual non-monogamy communities? Well, the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom was founded 26 years ago. It is a coalition of educational and social groups and businesses and private practices like law offices and mental health professionals. And we have uh, 160 of these groups and businesses and private practices. So our coalition has gotten quite large. We started out with just five in 1997. And the reason that we did that is because we saw that the groups were so busy doing the education for people and providing spaces for people to get together. It's really important that we have community spaces. And they didn't have as much time and ability to be outward facing and deal with local authorities who were harassing them or the media who picked up on what they were doing or the discrimination that was happening against their members. People were being fired from their jobs if it was discovered that they were kinky or losing child custody. And we still, we originally started out with just doing direct services, and we still do that. So we help hundreds of people a year. They come to us and say they have a problem that involves kink or consensual non-monogamy, and we refer them to professionals. We provide educational resources, and we, um, we're just there for them. And we are particularly there for groups and organizations so that they can continue to provide the services that are so important. 
Right. And these things are really critical. Wow. You So you started with seven groups back in 1997? Or did you yeah, say six or seven? Five. Five? Yeah. Wow. And now it's 160. That is really it quite is. an accomplishment, I have to say. What kind of things were you guys up against in 1997 when you got started? Horrible. It was, wasn't it? were closeted because if it was just discovered that you were kinky, that was it. The, the, the family court judges would remove your custody. In fact, we had the height of 124 parents came to us in 2008 when we started our project to change the diagnostic manual for the American Psychiatric Association where they stated in their diagnostic manual that if you were kinky, you were mentally ill. So we had to change that. And once we changed that, it made a huge difference. Last year, we only had seven parents come to us for help because their child custody had been threatened because they were kinky. So you can see the kind of the scale of the difference. We also, our venues were challenged. We had to do a couple of very long and protracted battles against hotel chains to ensure that we could have the conferences that we all enjoy so much today. There were organized resistance groups among the conservative, religious, political extremists who would target target our events, alert the media, alert the local authorities, and they kept trying to shut us down or pressure the, the hotels. So we did a lot of fighting about that early on and pretty much established that under fair abuse laws, we are allowed to hold our conferences in hotels, which helped our communities because that led to just an explosion of conferences and the ability for groups to meet in hotel meeting rooms. It, it's perfect for us. It's the right size. It's the right price point. And that makes it so important for us to gather together. Everybody's so closeted that we need these community spaces because we need that peer support to battle the, the stigma, battle the idea that something's wrong with us. You see a whole conference room full of people and we've all seen it. The new people come in and they're just like, wow. <laughs> loved and they feel like they're okay. So true. And that's what we want. Right. So true. Now I remember those days really, really well. I can remember quite a few conferences being canceled right at the very, very last minute because some group or several groups with signs and bullhorns would come and make sure that we were not welcome. And then they would threaten, you know, boycotts and things along those lines against the hotels. And I'm really glad to hear that. There's no question about it, that the the atmosphere has changed somewhat. And I know that is definitely due to a lot of activity on your part and the part of the people who work along with the NCSF for this. But what else is, has changed I mean, the NCASF has been critical, no question about it, but things have changed, haven't they? I mean, it's you're talking 2008, and now we're 2023. So, of course, needless to say, things have changed for the better in some ways and for the worse in others. I don't have to go into detail in regards to that. But who else was on your side at that time? Was there anything else that you – that who were your allies? You know, we are naturally uh, walking in the footsteps of our LGBTQIA allies because they are definitely blazing the trail when it comes to human rights. 
So that has always been a natural allyship. But quite frankly, they're fighting their own battle with sexual right. orientation. And, and, they, and, and sometimes they didn't want to get bogged down by our battle. So we have pretty much been entirely funded by kink groups. Some consensual non-monogamy groups, especially more recently, um, because of our work around consent with consensual non-monogamy and assisting groups and businesses with that. But it really mainly came down to us. NCSF is grassroots. We're all volunteer. So it's not like we have, we can, we've never gotten a grant. It's not like we're eligible for, for federal grants. So this is really a community-driven project. And it has been. And to think that it's been going on for 26 years is really incredible. I think it shows the strength of our community and the need that's out there. And I think the yeah, big I thing, would, of course, I would, I would is that. Yeah, it, it really is. We're, we've, we've come together. There, there really is. We almost had to because there really is nobody else fighting for us. But, of course, now we have um, more, a broader range of allies. Um, since all of our work on consent, uh, we have harm reduction agencies that we ally with to help work with them, like the state coalitions against sexual assault. We do a lot of training for crisis hotlines so that they can understand the difference between kink and abuse and be able to tease out when something might be abusive and be able to help the people that come to them. So that's a wonderful partnership that we've created. And, of course, we work with, um, you know, universities send us their interns so that we can teach them how to provide education. And so we're doing more work with that, which is wonderful. We love to have our interns, and uh, we feel like it's beneficial for everybody all around. And uh, working more with like, worker advocacy groups have just kind of risen in the past five or six years, and they're really working on decriminalizing all sorts of sex work. And we find that's a natural ally for us as well because, of course, Sexual freedom is about bodily autonomy and having the right to do with your body what you choose. So that's a that's a good natural ally for us. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, I know events that, that I've gone to over the years, there have been efforts, like for example, gift auctions and other types of fundraisers at these events that will go towards the NCSF because we really do know how important it is. But it's amazing to me, an all-volunteer organization, and you're supported completely by donations from the community and individuals who are on our side, so to speak. I think, too, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the public has become a little bit more familiar with what it is that we do because of the popular culture. Like, say what you want about Fifty Shades of Grey, but it kind of made a lot of people aware, and not just because Madonna was wearing a bra (laughs) that looked like she could show up in a dungeon any second. But I think Fifty Shades of Grey really did that. It just made it more out there, you know? Not as out there as it should be. But tell me a little bit more about the change to the uh, Diagnostic Standards Manual, the DSM, which is where all of the shrinks find their codes to diagnose uh, mental illness. We're no longer in there. Well, we are in there. But what they do is they actually specifically state that people who are in community networks, which is our groups, are mentally healthy as a whole. That people who are 
doing BDSM and are doing it consensually with adults are, are not mentally ill. It's when you're doing it non-consensually, when you're doing it with people who are underage, when you are doing it compulsively, which is often a different problem. You're, it's, it's like hand washing. It's not like hand washing is the problem. It's how you're doing it or turning on a light or off a light. It's how you're doing it. So sometimes um, those kind of behaviors can slip into those um, disorders. But we, they really specifically stated, which is wonderful because we created a, a brochure that has their quotes in it so that we give that to people who are having difficulty with child custody issues so that they can hand it to the judge so, so that they can educate them that what they're doing is not a problem. And this took a long time to, to put together. And part of the work around that was around consent and us getting the education out to our own communities and outside our communities about consent. And so it's not just black and white. There are nuances to consent that you have to consider. And you had mentioned Fifty Shades of Grey. I think one of the reasons that became such a worldwide phenomenon is because so many people in our communities, the kink communities, were able to speak out when that came out and talk about consent in a nuanced way, about privilege, about uh, coercion, stalking, uh, about pressure, just even undue influence in, when it comes to consent. We have freely given consent. Bought his ripper. There was a lot on the back, but <laughs> the fact that you discuss this before you do it, and that's a concept that's foreign to a lot of people. And I think that's one reason we were able to get the APA to change their diagnostic manual because we were able to show if you sit down and talk about this, we we what level of intensity we want, and we have a way to stop at any time. And that was convincing to them. And they did not want us to be swept up and be diagnosed in a courtroom uh, by people who don't have a mental health background. So we, right. we take that as a resounding success. That was one of our big points we needed, was we are not sick. Right. I find it, I find what you were saying about uh, the community and how the DSM says that if you were in a community, you are deemed healthy and safe. And when you think about it from the perspective of a long-term, long-time kingster, the community that we have is very close-knit, very close-knit. And when there are abusers, when there are consent violators, when there are these people who are on the fringe, we talk. We're like two old watchers. We talk, you know, and we talk about the, the good people and we talk about the abusers and the consent violators. And we read them out. They don't get invited to parties. They don't get invited to things where... They can continue to be consent violators. We read them out. So the community is absolutely essential in this process. You know, I always get emails from men that want to meet me. And they, you know, and they say, I'll meet you anywhere, mistress. I'll meet you anywhere. I said, okay, come to a much. Come to a much. Because... If it's just you and me, you might be able to pull the wool over my eyes. But if it's me 
and 20 of my closest friends, it's going to be a lot harder for him to pull the wool over all of us. Midnight Lady has a lot of friends, 20 of her closest friends. Oh, that's when you, when you got to a munch, it's the same people every month. So you, you get to know these people, you know. Right, right. You do. Uh, so it's much harder for that person to pull the wool over one person's eyes than it is to, to effectively fool a room full of other people who are gangsters. So we find that that community is key, and I'm glad that the DSM has recognized that it's the aloners, it's the people who don't have a community that are doing it. And unfortunately, the scene is very accepting of everybody. Um, no matter what, we're very accepting, but we're also, it's it's a place for these abusers to pass off S&M, you know, pass off abuse as S&M. No, they're, they're just abusers looking for their next target. So that's why the community is so important. You, you can get uh, references. You can talk, hey, I want to play with so-and-so. I heard you play with him. What do you think? Or her. Say whatever. You know, how was your experience with them? Oh, no, he was bad. He was this, and he didn't listen to my safe word. Oh, well, okay, that's that's good to know. Okay, thanks. And so now you're not going to play with them because you got a recommendation that said that he, you know, he doesn't listen to safe words, or he tried to tell me I didn't need a safe word. Or So I'm glad that that the community aspect, you know, is... Part of that, and that's our number one rule. First episode was how do you get involved in King? Leave your house, leave your house, <laughs> go to a munch, go to a play party. We say car. that constantly because it's so true. Yes. People, people have to get dressed and go out the door. <laughs> yeah, leave your house because you're right. not going to find community that's real people behind your computer. And it's really hard to have what I think we've kind of just described as a self-regulating system. It's really hard to run a self-regulating system if it's only just two people, no question about it. But Susan, talk to us a little bit about that, about the work that the NCSF has done in terms of setting up guidelines for BDSM activities. In other words, we can create that self-regulating system. How do we do that? The guidelines, how do we create that, that self-regulating system? We can't be afraid to talk. That's one of the things we can't, right? We have to be able to call people out. Or what is it? Well, it's a combination of things. We really encourage organizers to talk to other organizers in their region. And we love it when organizers have each other's phone number. I mean, we may not agree about everything. We may not even have the same consent culture in our group. But organizers need to communicate. And that is very important to keeping our communities safer because, as you say, we do have to self-regulate um, to make sure that people don't come in and use our words and pretend to be uh, consenting adults and then not. So we really encourage groups to, to network, and that's one reason I think so many people join NCSF. We have 
coalition partner cast halls where we have platforms for organizers to talk to each other. And so that's really kind of permeated the communities that it starts with the organizers being able to communicate with each other. And, of course, we agree that people should be able to talk about their personal experience. That started around 2012 on FetLife where people started finally speaking out about their personal experience, which is very valuable. Now, FetLife won't let you name names, but not in public, but they'll let you tell people in private. And um, that kind of puts a little bit of a, a hiccup in between getting the word out, but it helps protect you and, and FetLife and whatever platform you're on from being sued. Uh, for defamation, which is happening quite a bit more as people try to stop people from speaking out about what happened to them. But you can always speak out about your personal experience and just say, I had this scene, this happened, I didn't like this. Sometimes it takes people a couple of weeks to work through and process. It's not unusual at all for people to not really even realize that their consent has been violated because they often spend time testing with the person, trying to figure out what happened. Why did that go wrong? I thought I was so clear about this. And it becomes, it becomes clear as the time goes by, this person never had any intent of doing this consensually. Sometimes what we see is no aftercare. That's a big red flag. If somebody doesn't yeah. care about you, once right. the team has been done, you doesn't check in or do what you wanted, what you asked before the scene happened. That shows they never care. They never cared about ongoing consent. So it's important for people to put that out there because their friends are in the same circles as this person. So it helps spread the word. It helps remove people from our community, which is very important. We're all about education. Sometimes people can do minor things. Sometimes they can do really big things and realize what they've done. Take consent workshops. Keep away a little bit. Make sure that they understand the nuances. I mean, we are not being taught this in mainstream society. So we're getting people completely green when it comes to consent. So we we try to do our best to educate people, but there's some people that don't want to be educated. And those people, we need to just move out of these community spaces. I really feel for the people who are not part of these community spaces. It's actually, when you look at public surveys, Debbie Herbinick did a, a sexual diversity in America, uh, a sexual diversity in the U.S is the official title. And that was 2017. And she found 70% of adults in America enjoy spanking with their sex. 22% have role play. 20% have done bondage. I mean, that's millions of people. And yet less than 4% have attended a BDSM workshop or a party. Ah. So we are the tip of the iceberg that's visible and is kind of setting the tone. There's millions of people out there that don't have the access that they need to understand fully what this is. There, some of them are operating on the stereotypes instead of realizing, oh, a safe word is, you know, we have to have a safe word. And then even with consensual non-consent, you have to have a safe word to be able to stop what's happening at any time. You can role play an extreme scene where you want to be protesting. But, you know, if you have an asthma attack or you need to go pee, <laughs> Your your safe word, even if you're triggered, when you're going to be triggered and by what. And a safe word is a wonderful neutral way to not say no or stop, which some people have trouble doing when they're in that triggered state, but they can kind of speak out, you know, pomegranate. Right. 
Right. Very, very important. But uh, talk to us just a little bit. Well, we, we're talking about consent. This is right. But there's something that you mentioned, which is called explicit consent. And that seems to be one of the ways that people are really being very specific about what it is that they can tolerate, what it is that they cannot tolerate. So for example, you're into, say, caning. There are certain ways you can cane. There are other ways you certainly do not want to cane, right? Say, for example, something else like, oh, here's one, punching, punching, big one, okay? Shoulders, back of the shoulders is fine, but certainly not anywhere else. This is what we talk about when we say explicit consent. A lot of non-consensual reports of people being punched. I don't know what it is where a man will suddenly punch a woman in the face and think that's kink. That is not kink. That's never been kink. Right. Slapping. You have to be careful. There's a certain intensity. Do you want a light tap? If you want something stronger than that, you have to brace the other side of the face so that you make sure you don't hurt the jaw. Um, so there are different levels with this in this. And what we're seeing now is that People will say, hey, I'm into rough sex. Are you into rough sex? And the person will be like, oh, I could do a little bit of that. And then there's no other discussion. And then suddenly right. somebody's being right. punched or choked. That is not kink. And so we worked with the American Law Institute to create explicit prior permission. That is the new, you know, first there was safe, sane, and consensual. Then there was risk-aware, consensual kink. And now there's explicit prior permission. And what this does is this has kind of been a, a journey to more nuanced understanding of consent. And with explicit prior permission, that means you have to talk about it before you do it. You have to talk about specifically, opt-in. No more of this negotiating, okay, anything but. That's not negotiating. You have to talk about exactly what you want to do. And you can do it in text. You can do it in a conversation over coffee. You can turn it into a flirt you know, discussion, but you do need to do it as equals. You don't need to be in those roles when you're doing this because that already puts undue pressure on somebody. So you talk about what you want to do. You talk about the risks involved to make sure everybody's informed and the intensity that you're going to do it. And you make sure if somebody wants to protest, it's like, okay, you want to protest during this, but here's your, you know, what's your safe word? Okay, here's what my safe word is. Talk needs safe words too. We've mentioned that before. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody seems to remember that, but you know, that's really, really important. So what you're talking about with this explicit prior permission. Okay. So this is, you refer to it as a legal framework that was approved with the, with your work with the American Law Institute. Was, yeah. Okay. So it's a legal framework and this will protect you. God forbid there is some sort of problem, really, right? For your relationship is called into question legally. Even them was criminalized by case law. The cases that, you know, it's a criminal case that was tried and then it was appealed. And when the judge makes a decision in a case that's appealed, that becomes case law. It's very similar to legislative law that's passed by your assembly people or your legislators in your state. And under that case law, they found that even really mild activities like using nipple clamps or playing with a riding cross or even dripping hot wax, you can't consent to that. Mm. They call it consent 
is not a defense to assault. Mm, so what right. that did technically put us in a gray legal area where you may remember this back in the you know late 90s, early aughts, if somebody overheard you having a scene and called the police, the police would show up and they would arrest the cop. We called that the alleged domestic violence call. And so ah. NCS has spent a lot of time mm. talking and police officers and police departments and that, you know, there's millions of people doing this. You can't just arrest everybody who's doing this. And unfortunately, the pendulum swung back so far the other way that now prosecutors decline to prosecute anyone um, if, 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 if the defendant can just say, oh, well, here's a text that says they're into rough sex. The prosecutors just throw their hands up and go, we can't tell if you consented to this or not, so we're not going to prosecute, which is what it has allowed so many of these predators to come into our community. So NCSF has been working on this a very long time, also since 2008, this project started, and uh, working with the American Law Institute, and we heard that they were revising the model penal code on sexual assault. They haven't done that since 1962. So we worked wow. with them, yeah, and they created a brand new section. And that's why our sexual assault laws are such a patchwork around the country, because the states have to adopt it. So now we're going out into each state. It's going to be published next year, but it's been approved. And once it's published, we can start lobbying states to integrate this into their sex, their sexual assault, their assault, their domestic violence law, so that if people are really doing kink and are really getting consent the way they should, they will be protected. And if they are not, they can then be prosecuted. We're already introducing this into court cases. So that's why people need to know it now. Right. I think there's a, there's a very key element to what you said about explicit prior permission and talking about it very specifically. What is it exactly that you want? And a brilliant uh, uh, example of this is I, I did a scene with a young man and he wanted a spanking. That was it, a spanking. I was like, oh, I can do that. And I was new, obviously he was new. We did not really communicate much more than he wanted a spanking. Okay. So I, I gave him one. I'm, I'm more of a sensual player. And so I gave him something that I would have given him because he said he wanted a spanking. Well, at the end of the scene, he got very angry with me. He said, that's not what I wanted. I wanted the crap out of me and I said oh um I didn't know that uh, and it didn't occur to me to say anything to you you know we we were definitely so one person's uh pain tolerance level is so vastly different from any other person's pain tolerance um so when you say, well, I want to speak, well, that could mean a world of difference, you know? And so you know, the whole, okay, I want a spanking with just these toys. And I, I don't want to go above five. Let's say on the pain scale, I don't want to go above five. Well, his five and my five, I'm a masochist. So my five, you know, it, it's much higher in his five, let's say. So you would then, right. during the scene, you would have to acknowledge and get his continued 
continued explicit prior permission that what you're giving him doesn't go above a five. His five, not my five. My five is like his 10, you know. So you you have to have that, that very, very, very specific tested, what their five look like? So I know I don't go above that. Because that could happen accidentally. You could get a shot or two. Hey, that's not what I wanted. That's not what I wanted. I, I only wanted a five. Well, yeah, I gave you my five. I didn't give you your five. Because I don't know what your five is. So it's an ongoing process. Yes. Uh, seeking explicit prior permissions. Ongoing throughout your scene. However, um, it seems to me that there are certain things that explicit prior permission should not cover. And one of the things that I'm always concerned about in terms of education and safety are, are things that you really shouldn't do. And in our, uh, in our particular, yeah, you know, in our particular community, we tend to say, well, you know, my kink's okay, your kink's okay, but sometimes it is not. And I think that that needs to be recognized by, by us in, within the community as well, because there is no, there is no reason why uh, these types of activities should continue. But again, people are not informed. People are not educated. People don't go to, as you said before, Susan, you know, have never attended a demo uh, and, and really are not not aware of the kinds. Of, I'm talking specifically about activities such as choking. OK, this is something people should not be doing. And there are very good reasons for it. So no matter how much prior permission you might have from somebody to be able to choke them, you're looking at a lot of issues right here and you're looking at a lot of danger and you're looking at potential disaster a so lot of, these are things yeah yeah a lot of people do not know the risks involved in choking it, it, it debbie herbernick again did a college campus prevalence uh survey and found that over half of these young adults had been choked or choked somebody um during sex and of that of the people that were choked Half said they were only sometimes or never asked. They wanted it. Much less had a discussion about the risks, and there are serious risks when it comes to choking that people aren't aware of. It's the most serious thing NCSF sees. It, 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 those are the reports that we get where somebody has been killed or somebody has had a stroke and then are on a long path back uh, of rehabilitation. Those are the cases where people are sued, estates or the, the family group, as well as individuals, because they have medical bills. They can go to the group and say, you held a breastplate class. You taught us how to do this, and now I'm injured. And then the group is having to pay those medical bills. So there's wow. a lot of ignorance all around about the risks involved. We're trying to make sure organizers understand, because you may not be aware that you're putting your life in your house in somebody else's hands, because um, it's very sad when somebody comes to me and says, yeah, I had to pull all the equity out of my house and take out a loan to be able to pay these medical bills just because we allowed choking in the dungeon, for example. And the reason it's so risky is because if you squeeze or if you put pressure on the throat, there's a lot of very delicate things happening in here. You can release plaque so easily. So NCSF has a, a article called, Is Choking Legal?, and something else people don't know is 20 states, it's illegal whether you have consent or not. Mm. 
And in other states, it's illegal if you even, you know, even if you have a horse throat. No, don't even have to have bruises, but certainly if you have bruises on the outside and the neck. So a lot of people are doing this so casually without realizing they are risking their entire life doing this. And so NCSF pussy is choking legal out, and we're going to be working on a white paper about the the physical risk. They've done brain scans of people, and their their thought process is different after they've been choked. It it yeah. cuts off oxygen from the brain, and and it kills brain cells. So what NCSF suggests is you can do breath play where you order your cells to, to hold their breath. You can do that over and over again. You can have an amazing breath play team that way where somebody gets all the benefits of, of uh, the high, the rush, without actually having the danger. And, of course, you can do role play choking where you just put your hand on somebody's right. neck. There's a light pressure that comes with that that's not high risk, but you can feel it. It evokes all those sensations. There's a very vulnerable feeling. And I think that's another thing we need to talk about is the gendered of this in Debbie's research, uh, 22% of the women said that they had been choked, but only 1% said that they had choked a partner, and those numbers were reversed. 21% of men said that they had choked a partner, and only 2% said that they had been choked. So all the people out there saying, oh, we're doing this for pleasure, for pleasure, it's like, really, whose pleasure here is, you know, I mean, what are you getting out of this? That, that, and I think it's porn. Porn is showing people doing it. Porn, they're not really doing that. The liability risk, porn stars are not really choking each other. They are acting. So people That's see right. this acting and they That's think, right. I can choke somebody to unconsciousness and they'll pop right up and then we'll go on with the scene. That's not what happens. Right. So I love that you right. brought this up because it's something that we're not talking about enough and Certainly people who are doing it, they need to know the risk if they're going to be doing it. And what we call risk-aware consensual kink or rack is not enough. Okay, we need specific information out there for, and I like the idea that the NCS is doing this, is choking legal. No, it is not in 20 states at the very least. And it's not a smart move. Under any circumstances, do something else. I like the way you explain that. I think that that is extremely, extremely valuable. It worries me when I see people doing things. You know, years ago, it used to be, oh my gosh, no fire play. Oh no, don't do anything along those lines. Now fire play is fine, but the big thing is, okay, now watch yourself when you're going to be doing this kind of choking activity. So the more information we can get out there, the better off we're going to be. There's no question about it. Susan, one of the things that I know about NCSF and have known about it since the very, very beginning and has always thought this was very valuable is your CAP list or Kink Aware Professionals. This is this is really terrific. I mean, you show up at your doctor's office with bruises, okay, and uh, the doctor says, what's going on here? Or you're filling out the uh, the paperwork before you actually go see the doctor. And one of the questions is, have you ever experienced any violence or violent type feelings within your relationship at home? Doctor's going to notice the bruises, and then now you have to explain them. The doctor may be unfamiliar with this, but we don't have that problem. We find somebody on the cap list because they are aware of what it is that we do. So this is lawyers, doctors, what else? 
mental health professionals. Boy, we have the mental health professionals. We have so many mental health professionals. And that's really important because if you have an issue with your partner and you want to go to marriage counseling, well, it really helps if you're going to somebody who understands kink or consensual non-monogamy. So you're not having to wade through all of that before you actually get to your issue. Um, or having that be used kind of a judginess. Um, also, personally, if you've been through a trauma, it's very helpful to have a, a trauma-informed counselor who also understands kink so they can tease out those, those different aspects. So certainly, if you need a mental health professional, come and check out our kink and polyamory-aware professionals. Uh, we have probably, I think it's 2,500, close to 3,000 professionals. It was searched wow. 1,000 times last year. It is so, in such demand, some of our professionals that are on that list make their entire practice out of people that come to them through our cap list. And, of course, we have attorneys. Very important. If you are in a child custody battle or having a divorce, it's wonderful to have a family court attorney who understands us so they'll be ready to defend you. If you have, if you're, Relationship has never been called under question. You need a defense attorney. It's really important to have a defense attorney who understands kink and, and knows that explicit prior permission exists so that they can introduce that to be able to try to defend you. So, uh, we, yeah, we have a lot of different, um, professionals listening on there. We have wedding professionals. We have massage therapists. We, we introduce new categories as needed. For example, mediators. Um, groups that wanted to deal with, you know, how do we do restorative justice? How do we allow people to come back into our community? Well, we suggest they just refer people to the mediator list and say, if this is something that you want, you can work this out with the person that you were having this issue with. And then come back and let us know what happened. And so you let a professional deal with it. Individuals should never try to mediate for people. There, it, it's a very difficult process. Yes, so it is. We, and you have to be trained to do it. To do it. Yeah, we provide the, the professionals that people need. If you did mediation, you know. Well, you don't want to throw an amateur into something like that. That's, that's yeah. something new yeah. that I've seen, too, um, in my career as a kingster, where... Originally, these weekend kink events did not have any sort of personnel. And now I'm finding when I go to events now, there's a whole section. There's a whole, you know, part of the brochure that said, if you're having an issue, we have meeting, we have ombudsman, we have, you know, if you experience a consent violation. You can report this to us and we can, you know, discover it. We can discuss it. We can mediate it. We can do whatever we need to do. Everybody, you know, uh, is safe in this situation. So I'm, I think that's wonderful that, that we have these people, these mediators that can uh, assist and benefit the community. Absolutely. Yeah, before it gets out of hand in particular, because I've seen that happen too. It's really something. But I just want to say 3,000 kink aware professionals. Wow. 
That is just amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And it is absolutely wonderful to hear. Susan, tell us a little bit about the NCSF's work on behalf of the non-monogamous community, also known as Swingers. Yes. And Swing and Kink, for some reason, is sort of melding these days. There's a big conference going on, I know, in, in October, which uh, used to be all, all Swing, and now it's Swingers and Kink together. Fascinating. So tell us a little bit about your work with them. You know, absolutely. It was, it's becoming a labeler, where people are not labeling what it is that they're doing. And with the consensual non-monogamy community, there's all different kinds of consensual non-monogamy. There's polyamory, which is more relationship-based. There's swinging, which is more couple-based often, but, but it, that's even changing. It, it tends to be, with what you call swinging, tends to be clubs or events. Right. And, you know, sometimes people can get together 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, you'll see the same group of, of couples and individuals coming together year after year know each other. They're comfortable with each other. And it's just as much a relationship as the traditional polyamory, the relationship anarchy, where people are not trying to put any label on their relationship. And they're just being very ethical about how they go about it and letting everybody know involved who they're seeing. And they're taking care to do STI testing and get that whole risk aware, making sure everybody understands the risks involved. But when it comes to the, the actual, you know, lifestyle or swing, we work a lot with these owners of the club and, um, they often do like cruises and they do hotel takeovers, flash buyers, you know, at resorts. Um, they are very interested in making sure that what is happening at their event is consensual. And so we are working with them like we do with the kink group to set up consent policies to set for how to inform the attendees about these consent policies. We're working with a wonderful group called Safer Sex that is creating little videos, like little orientation videos that get the consent policy out there about don't touch anybody without permission. Uh, if somebody touches you, make sure that you say no uh, or stop. And then if you're really uncomfortable, inform the organizer. Um you know, it's very important that everybody has the same ground rules coming in. So we love the orientation. And it's very important that you have procedures for how to deal with this. You have designated people. NCSF trains consent response teams as well as Safer Sex does that as well, where there's individuals going around the event that are clearly marked that if you're having an issue, you can just sit down and talk with them and make sure if you if you see something and you're worried, you can sit down and say, hey, I saw this. Can you check this out? I'm a little concerned about that. And that's very important that we all support each other. And it's very important that the groups follow their own procedures and make sure that their volunteers are held to the same standards to make sure that there is a way to be able to communicate that all of this is happening and who is responsible for dealing with it there at the event. Sometimes right. you have to quietly ask somebody to leave. Uh, sometimes yes. you just need to do on-the-spot education. So by having these procedures in place, that helps protect all of the attendees. It also helps protect the owner from liability, from being sued. If you have in place right. all of these consent procedures, and you have let all your attendees know what's expected from them, if somebody acts out and does sexually assault somebody else, that's on them. That's not on 
the organizers or the volunteers or the DM who happens to be there within site. It's very important to have these procedures in place to protect us. It's funny, you know, back in the day, we didn't have to worry about liability issues so much because everybody was closeted. Nobody would go out and say, oh, I was at a swing club and I got sexually assaulted, right? Nowadays, people go, I was at a swing club and I was sexually assaulted and now you owe me $10,000. So <laughs> we have to make it's sure. It's inevitable. That- <laughs> yep, it was. I mean, we're, it, I love the fact that we're not having to be as closeted, that the stigma has reduced as much. But now there's this. So these kinds of practices, it's just like we used to have the dungeon rules of clean the furniture when you're done. We need to have those rules around consent. That's more very, very, very important. What I remember so clearly is maybe the first swinger group convention or conference or hotel takeover, let's call it that. The first one I went to, the the book that described all of the presenters and what they were doing and um, all of the people who were operationally running this event, but there was not one word about consent, not one word asking about permission, ask permission before you test somebody, et cetera. You know, in the pool, you don't just, you know, jump somebody's bones in the pool. This is not something that we do. Well, nothing, absolutely nothing was in there 15 years ago, the first time I went to one. This year, we're starting up again, this particular group, and um, there is a load of stuff in the booklet that, you know, the uh, little magazine that they that they produce, there's a load of stuff about consent, about the way you approach people and how you very graciously can refuse people and how you can very graciously accept that refusal. And it is really, I think, critical because, I mean, years ago, people just went up and did whatever they wanted to. You were there. Well, that meant you were, you know, there to be touched and played with or even assaulted. And today that is far gone. And which makes me very proud of that community. And I've seen a lot of it because I used to vend at a lot of these kinds of lifestyle events. And I've seen them change over the years. And I have to tell you that some of the people that I have met are the most considerate and caring people I've ever met in any kind of a subculture. And I'm very proud to hear and to see that they are taking this very, very seriously, because it is important. There is no question about that. You cannot play, and you cannot play well without having consent. When we have consent, we have tremendous potential to have a great deal of fun together. But we're still working on that. We'll see. We'll see where it, where it takes us. And Two Kinky Women is certainly invested in, in this for sure. Absolutely. We, we talked about, we've had podcasts about consent, rack, consensual, non-consent, all those kinds of things. Because we, we've just, we've gotten to the point where, you know, anything goes is not our motto. We Absolutely have to, yeah. we have to. It's two hands, consent and education. Right. Um, I used to, when I was living in Jersey, I used to be the co-hostess for a group that was centered out of New Jersey. And I was the um, I was the welcome wagon for all the new people that would come in. And the, we had meetings like twice a week. Back then, we had meetings twice a week. And we had a lot of new people. And um, at the time, I was collared 
I was in a power exchange dynamic and I was collared. And a gentleman came in and I said to him, Hi, my name is Adele. Hi, my name is Midnight Lady. And, you know, um, what's your name? And he, he looked at me and said, On your knees, slave. And I was like, well, I'm from Jersey. We don't take kindly to that. So I had to whip out my jersey and I said, let me tell you how this is going to play out. I said, you can come in here like an asshole and be all like, what are you doing? I said, and your ass will get booted out here so fast that the door will hit you in the behind when you leave. I said, or you can come in here and say, I... My name is Tom. I like rope. Great. Uh, welcome. So he said, so how do you want to play this? He goes, hi, my name is Tom and I like rope. <laughs> I said, welcome. Here, let me introduce you to some people who like rope too. Um, so these people, they come in with this preconceived internet notion of what kink is, and you have to educate them in a nice way. So that whole exchange became known as the asshole speech. And my, my, the other host of the group would come up to me every night at the end of the night and say, how many asshole speeches did you have to give? And I said, no, it was a good night. We'd have to give any. You know, or it was, oh, it's not good. You know, I said a couple of people straight. Um, so when we talk about consent, it's also important that we also dis discuss education because people just don't know these simple facts about kink. And they, they, they they think they could just show up at a party and just grab whatever they want and touch whatever they want and do whatever they, they want because they don't know any better. They, you know, so now, yes, it is up to us as veterans in the community to educate and, and talk about consent and, and how many times have we read something on FetLife or read something on Reddit where they were like, well, What's a safe word? You know, what's a safe word? How, how do you know? How do you? How are you doing this and you don't know what a safe word is? You know, so then I get a little upset about it. You know, it's like okay, let's start from A. I'm going to teach them the alphabet now. Let's start from the letter A, um, because they aren't just going willy nilly doing all this stuff, risking. Because they don't know what they're doing. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people cane other people who knew nothing what they were doing. Um, it's really true. And you would think that by this time, with the internet the way it is, yeah. with all of the books and programs, I mean, there's a very popular Netflix series. I'm not sure if it's still on. I think it is. Which is absolutely hysterical and a lot of fun to watch. But they do also talk about consent and safe words and everything in there. And with the internet, you wouldn't think that this is yeah. still a problem, but people, because it's sex and we're, you know, and we are humans and we like to have sex. 
we know everything we need to know about it. Guess what? We do not for sure. Susan, how can people reach you and reach the NCSF? You have a fabulous website with all of the Kinkaware professionals listed there as well. Materials on there. We're very much about open source. People can take our sample consent policy and adjust it for your own group. You can order brochures. Any group or individual can order brochures from us. We have our got consent for kink and got consent for non-monogamy. And we have tips in there about negotiating, like who's going to be involved? Why are we doing this together? Like, is that that's your thinking? Is it a punishment thinking? Is it a sensual thinking? You know, are we looking at a, a relationship starting here? Or is this casual? As well as, you know, specifically what you're going to do and when there's health risks involved. So we have all this material on our website as well as links to the, the cap list. And you can find out a lot more about explicit prior permission and our, our work on lobbying efforts to, uh, to get that adopted. We're doing outreach in states. So volunteer for NTSF. We do everything by committee. You can come and participate in a committee and be a part of this amazing work that we're doing. I, I really am very, very grateful for you, Susan. All of us in the community, King community should be very grateful to you folks at the NCSF. And I want to say that I personally support the NCSF. I have a whole thing on my FET profile about the NCSF. And we have got to, uh, we've got to support you guys because that's supporting all of us. By supporting you, we're supporting ourselves. By supporting NCSF, we are supporting consent and education, and that's what we're about, right, ML? That's we are, our, our main prime directive is ed- education and safety and consent. Right. And if you want to find out more about us, you can listen to us at our homepage, which is 2kinkywomenpodcast.com. Yes, that's in the merit too. To kinkywomenpodcast.com, read the diary, download your free infographic available every month. We are all about the education. And uh, you can join, uh, sign up for the newsletter. And you can get notified every month uh, when the podcast drops and get free email goodies. I design. Because we are two kinky women and we want you to be kinky too oh yes we do (laughs) safely sanely and consensually susan wright thank you so much for your time today we really did appreciate it It was wonderful speaking with you and we will be featuring you on our website and we want to thank you heartfelt thanks from we kingsters midnight lady and Mistress Gabrielle. Take good care, be well, and thank you again for joining us at 2KinkyWomenPodcast.com.